The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, yet ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome back to the program. This is Joe Schuldenrein. This is our second episode of a renewed run for our series, Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, 21st Century Archaeology. Again, I'd like to thank the producers of Voice America for their decision to move forward with the archaeology show. As I mentioned last week, that decision was based on successful survey numbers, and I'd like to extend my appreciation to all of you who have found our program worthy of interest, and I'm excited to have the opportunity to advance the message of 21st century archaeology going forward and to update you on what's happening in our field. Again, our message is that archaeology, while exciting and somewhat glamorous in the vein of Indiana Jones, The field is nevertheless productive and one that calls attention to contemporary issues as well. Now, this segment that we're going to do today is somewhat Indiana Jones-ish, if you will, as it calls to mind our fascination with people of unique achievement and daring do. The case of Amelia Earhart is triply compelling in this regard, insofar as she was not only the consummate adventurer, but she was a woman who pioneered the technologies of flight when barely... Uh, a, a, a number of men could lay claim to that. And, of course, her disappearance remains a mystery that has never really been solved, at least to the satisfaction of the public at large. My guest today is Thomas F. King, no stranger to anyone who has been following the program and certainly no stranger to the archaeology community at large, both nationally and on the world stage. Tom is probably best known for his expertise on legal matters in the world of compliance archaeology. He has, in fact, authored much of the legislation related to cultural resource management, but, like all archaeologists, Tom remains fascinated by the practice of archaeological exploration and research and has carved out a unique niche in aviation archaeology focused on the Amelia Earhart story. Uh, By way of biography, Tom King is an archaeology who has gone beyond archaeology to practice in and preach about heritage or cultural resource management. His career includes research in California and the Micronesian Islands, management of consulting groups, helping establish historic preservation system in the governments of Micronesia, oversight of project review for the federal government's advisory council on historic preservation, service as a litigant and expert witness in heritage-related lawsuits, and work as a consultant and educator. 
He is best known for his work in, within the indigenous groups and local communities, and has authored eight books on archaeology and heritage-slash-cultural resource management, as well as many journal articles, popular articles, and Internet offerings on heritage issues. His most recent nonfiction book, Our Unprotected Heritage, published by Left Coast Press, is a critique of contemporary cultural historic uh, resource management and environmental impact assessment. He also conducts, as we'll be discussing in this particular episode, with a group called the Historic Group for Historic Aircraft Recovery, Tiger, focusing on the 1937 disappearance of aviation pioneer Amelia Earhart. I'm again pleased to welcome Tom King to our show. Tom, very thanks so much for showing up and, and agreeing to participate. Well, thank you, Joe. I'm glad to be here. Thank you, Tom. So let me begin by asking you what got you interested in this theme on Amelia Earhart, aviation archaeology, and the search for uh, for the plane. Well, as of about 1988, I hadn't the least interest in Amelia Earhart or aviation archaeology, and I still, uh, about the only thing I know about airplanes is you walk on toward the front usually, and you walk down the aisle, and you get in a seat. Um, I am not an aviation guy other than I have to fly around a lot. Um, but back in about 1988, when I was working for the Advisory Council on Historic Preservation, this funny guy named Rick Gillespie called me up, and he said, Hi, uh, you're the Advisory Council on Historic Preservation, and I need some advice. We're setting up this organization called the International Group on Historic Aircraft Recovery, or for Historic Aircraft Recovery, TIGER, and um, we want some advice about ways that we can preserve historic aircraft. I thought, wow, that's pretty neat. A citizen actually wants our advice. So I invited him and his wife, Pat Thrasher, to come in, and we had a very good talk with my boss, uh, Bob Garvey, who was a, a World War II fighter pilot. And uh, the long and short of it was that I got involved with Tiger. And a few years later, a couple years later, Rick called up and said that they were getting ready to, to go looking for Amelia Earhart in the South Pacific, and I said, well, I'm leaving government and um, don't have much to do, and I've done work in the South Pacific, so if you need an archaeologist, here I am. And he did, and I went on the first expedition back in 89 and have been doing it more or less ever since. Now, had you been, been working in Micronesia or in the Pacific before that time so that you were familiar with the archaeology? Yes, I'd, I'd worked there from 77 to 79, um, in historic preservation and setting up historic preservation programs in the new governments there. And I'd done a good deal of archaeology, including some World War II archaeology. At that time, I was one of the fairly few people who'd done that kind of archaeology. So it was, it was relevant to the kind of thing that Rick was looking for. So this was sort of a natural fit. I mean, you had the regional expertise. You obviously had gotten the... Uh the Sound Foundation and, and developed the, the, the baseline for doing this kind of work. And, and so you got stimulated and, and excited somewhat, I guess, by, by the possibility of getting into a mystery that, that really had captured the fascination of a lot of people, I guess. Well, I think at the time I mostly wanted to get back to Micronesia. And, uh, you know, it's a pretty neat place and very, and it was an interesting project. Um, but as I have become more involved in it over the years, 
it's become more and more intellectually engaging, just trying to figure out the mystery. I mean, it really is a, an engaging mystery. And um, that's, that's what keeps, I think, all of us going. We're, it's a fairly large group, and we, um, I think we're all engaged by the, by the mystery of it all. Uh, let me, let's get back into that. So these gentlemen approached you about the issue. How did they present it, and what was their particular interest in it, and how did they organize their operation in advance of your participation? Well, I mean, Rick's primary interest in setting up Tiger actually was in the preservation of historic aircraft. And he was very concerned about historic aircraft being irresponsibly flown and wrecked and poorly displayed, displayed in ways that uh, basically destroy their historic character. And that's what brought him to us at the Advisory Council looking for, looking for guidance. When he got into the, the Earhart mystery, um, well, that was kind of a side venture, uh, but, but he was, he had become fascinated by aviation-related mysteries of all kinds and was interested in trying to solve them. He'd been working for some time on uh, seeking a plane uh, called, I don't speak French, but Le Sol Blanc, the White Bird, uh, which two French uh, aviators, Nunguser and Coley, tried to fly across the, across the Atlantic in the same um, competition that Charles Lindbergh was in, and they disappeared, have never been found. Uh, Rick thinks, Tiger thinks, that they wound up somewhere, probably Newfoundland, and there's a continuing search for that plane. So he had been involved in that, but had always felt, he said, that, that the Earhart mystery was just too crazy, that she'd obviously run out of gas and crashed into the ocean, and it was silly to go looking for her. But then these two guys, uh, uh, these two retired navigators, joined Tiger and sort of talked about their hypothesis for what happened to her. And it made sense, and it put her down on this uninhabited island in the South Pacific, which had never really been searched. So that obviously presented a challenge, and uh, Rick jumped at it, and it happened that I was in a position to uh, jump with him. So, so this, this, this mission sort of started out as a preservation question, and then it, it sort of took, uh, if not an independent direction, it got a little bit refocused because of the fascination with Amelia Earhart and her achievements and is that where it was going? I mean, is that how it, it, it evolved as, as sort of a more comprehensive exercise? Well, um, I suppose Tiger is still very devoted to the preservation of historic aircraft, and we have several projects in the works to recover and preserve, properly preserve, uh, historic aircraft that are in basically archaeological contexts in various parts of the world. One of them's down in the lagoon in Jalowit in uh, the Marshall Islands. There's another one in England. Um, so there are a number of, of projects like that. Uh, the search, the mystery-solving part of it is just 
just one aspect of Tiger's work. So the mystery aspect of it is is, is not necessarily the, the main focus, obviously, but um, in terms of, of generating support, I mean, this is obviously privately funded? Yeah, Tiger is entirely privately funded. We get some money from, from media sources when we go on expeditions and have media go with us. Um, but basically, it's an entirely privately funded operation. So, so let's get back to to how the search evolved and and where it was certainly in terms of of, of the the state of affairs when you got involved. And I'm speaking specifically about the search for the for the wreck and and the the question of trying to resolve this mystery. Where was it at at that time, and how have have we advanced? And how has Tiger's mission been advanced over the past, I guess, close to 30 years now? Yeah, 20, 24 20, years, yeah, 24 uh, years, to be precise. Um, well, at the time, we, we had these two guys, Tom Willie and Tom Gannon, who were retired aerial navigators. And they pointed out that the last radio message that everybody agreed had come from Earhart. Uh, well, I should back up and say a little about Earhart and how she was doing a world flight. She was trying to fly around the world at the equator with her navigator, Fred Noonan, in a Lockheed Electra 10E. They were flying on this particular leg from Ley, New Guinea, to Howland Island, a little tiny speck of coral in the middle of the Pacific. They never made it to Howland Island. There was a Coast Guard cutter lying off the island, the Itasca, that was supposed to guide them in with radio direction finding. They could never establish two-way radio communication, couldn't guide them in. They got lost. Um, the last message that Itasca received that everybody agrees came from Earhart said, we are on the line 157-337. Well, what Tom, what the Toms, Tom Willie and Tom Gannon, came up with was that is a line of position. That's a line of position that Noonan would have plotted when the sun rose that morning and then advanced by dead reckoning until it should run through Howland Island. And then if they didn't see Howland Island, they would turn and fly up and down the line of position until they did see Howland Island. So, so this is their coordinate system, and they were able to basically fix her approximately in space? Well, uh, yeah, sort of. That's, yeah. that's basically it. 157, 337 is 157 degrees and 337 degrees. So, right. Yeah. Uh, okay, so the thing about that line is if you plot that, that course through Howland Island to the north, the first land you get to is the Kamchatka Peninsula, which is 4,000 miles away. So if you don't know where you are when you hit that line, you're probably not going to invest a whole lot of time in flying north, because if you're north of Howland Island, you're lost. Um, but if you are south... You're lost because... Wait, you're lost because wait, of what? You're, you're lost because you don't know where you are, except you know that you're on this line of position... Right, but okay. But you have no landmarks. There are no landmarks, no. I mean, right. you're over the ocean. Right. Uh, and Howland Island is a little tiny island. Got it. So if, if you are north of the island and you fly north, you're in the drink. If you are north of the island and you fly south, you ought to find the island. 
If you're south of the island and you fly south, and here was the key, if you're south of the island and you fly south, you come to the island now called Nicomororo, in those days called Gardner Island, which is a larger island, uninhabited, very visible from the air, and with, it turns out, quite a few landing places. Uh, so what the Toms said was, we think she flew down the line of position and she wound up on Nicomororo. Okay, that was the only real evidence we had when we got started, but that was sufficient to get started. And since then, we've found a wealth of historical and archaeological data uh, suggesting very strongly that that's exactly what Earhart and Noonan did. They flew down the line of position. They landed on Nicomororo. They sent off a lot of radio messages. They survived for a while, and eventually they died. That's sort of the hypothesis in a nutshell. Okay, now... We know that after they had been missing for uh, several days or, or even a week, there was a massive Coast Guard search for them. Is that, that correct? A massive search by the U.S. Navy and the Coast Navy. Guard and the Japanese and the British. Um, I mean, everybody searched for them. It was a it was a major a major effort. And do you, do we know on what basis uh, they searched, or did they have any? Did they go on any of this information? What was the information at the state? What was the state of information at the time that they undertook their search? Well, information was coming in all the time because there was a <coughs> continuous stream of radio messages. Um, now, the the thing about the radio messages is, if any of them came from Earhart, she had to be on land because she had to be able to crank a prop and generate electricity to run her radio. She couldn't be in the ocean. She couldn't have been floating around in the ocean. So the Navy was getting these messages, which were generally you know, not very easily decipherable. They were just little snippets. Um, but they took them seriously, and they used them to guide the search. And I should say that Rick has published a book, published a book in 2006 called Finding Amelia that goes into a good deal of detail about these radio messages and about the Navy's search and what happened. Uh, it was published by the Naval Institute Press. And um, he's now updating the data and you know, reanalyzing. We're always constantly reanalyzing. But there were over 100 messages received that initially people thought probably came from Earhart. And the Navy deployed ships, the Coast Guard deployed ships, uh, looking for her, including the battleship Colorado that went down into the Phoenix Islands, where Nicomororo is, and flew float planes over all the major islands looking for her. Uh, they flew over Nicomororo and didn't see her, though they said they did see signs of recent habitation, didn't say what they were, um, decided she wasn't there and didn't land or didn't send a boat ashore. So, yeah, the Navy, the Navy pursued a very vigorous search and took these radio messages very seriously, but then when they didn't find anything, um, they said, well, they must all be hoaxes. And for many, many years, that's been the assumption until Rick and his colleague Bob Brandenburg did their analysis of the radio messages, um, they were pretty uniformly accepted as just hoaxes. Many of them are, 
but uh, a lot of them look like they probably aren't. And on that note, I think we're going to have to take a break. We'll come back with Tom King and the search for Amelia Earhart after these words. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Explore the power and beauty in yourself and in others. Tune in to The Stacy Stern Show, enriching you. Every week, Stacy Stern will connect you with men and women who are living and working from a place of passion. Stacy's guests include successful authors, filmmakers, actors, experts, and leaders. You'll hear what inspires each of them, and you'll be turned on to great films, books, and new media. Tune in to The Stacy Stern Show, enriching you, Tuesdays at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. It's all about action. Scores. Taking a look at the NBA tonight. Highlights. He's broken loose. He's at the 30. And headlines. Big trade in the NFL this afternoon. When you are looking to talk sports, look no further than the Voice America Sports Network. We bring you some of the biggest names and all the sports news you can handle. Whether it's basketball. Off the glass. Football. Come on. Golf. Racing. Or the Olympics. We've got you covered. We'll even cover tailgating. Tune in to the Voice America Sports Network. It's all things sports. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra georg.com. Now, back to the program. Thanks. We're back. This is Joe Schildenrein back again on Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. I've been talking to Dr. Tom King about his involvement with TIGER, which is a uh, aviation program for archaeology, and uh, which is probably best known for its work in unraveling or trying to unravel the mystery of the disappearance of Amelia Earhart and her aircraft. Tom, I was intrigued by uh, by the uh, the efforts that going back to the time of of the crash, you were saying that she obviously had to have been on shore to have produced these communications. Uh, my only question in that regard is. Did they actually initiate the search while they assumed she was still alive or while these broadcasts were still coming on? Is that what was happening? 
Oh, yes. They, they initiated the search as soon as they thought she was down, as soon as she had not appeared at Howland Island on schedule, and, and they figured she was down somewhere. Okay, uh, but, but the communications were coming in. The communications were coming in. Some of them were received by Itasca. Some of them were received by other stations around the Pacific. Um, so they were coming in constantly, well, not constantly, but periodically over the next uh, six days or so. Okay, and then all of a sudden they stopped. Yeah, yeah, all of a sudden they stopped. Okay, so your team, your team's interpretation of of the communications, as you had indicated, that some of them may have been hoaxes, some of them might have been real. Where where does that stand, and and, and what what is the nature of the research that they've undertaken to develop a hypothesis on what really happened? Well, that that radio transmission research is ongoing. Uh, it is reported in Rick's book in in fair detail, a good deal of detail. But it's ongoing. They're refining the model and and particularly doing things like plotting when all the transmissions took place and plotting those against things like tidal conditions on Nicomaroro, uh the day, day and night cycle, and so on, to, to get an idea of which ones make sense as as possible uh, transmissions from Earhart on the island. What we think happened is that they landed safely on the reef flat around the island, which was almost dry at the time that they arrived there, that they landed safely, and that the plane sat there for about five or six days. Um, And they could get into it and broadcast. It would be difficult to get into it uh, when the tide was high, it would be difficult to get into it or stay in it during the day because it would be hot as the devil. Um, but we think that they got out at night, mostly, and transmitted radio messages um, until the tide, when they got there, it was a neap tide, a low, low tide, and it got steadily higher over the next few days. And eventually, we think it floated the plane went off over the edge of the reef and had disappeared by the time the pilots from the USS Colorado flew over on the 9th. Oh, so in other words, and they they have a general idea where this reef might have been. Obviously, they couldn't map it or anything like that. But they So they're saying that at some point the tidal waters sort of swept them away, and at that point they were relatively helpless. Well, at one point, eventually, the tide took the plane over the reef edge. Right. Now, now we have a photograph from from October of 1937 that shows what very much appears, and good forensic imaging experts say very much appears, to be the landing gear of a Lockheed Electra sticking out of the water at the spot where we think she landed. And we think that the plane, as it was dragged across, lost its one of the landing gear, which was left there sticking up, not exactly sticking up out of the water, but protruding from the water um, for some time. It's not there now. Uh, it's long since disappeared. But, um, yeah, we think it landed. They landed on the reef. It was safe. They, at least one of them was safe there for a while. 
the plane was on its wheels. Eventually, the plane went off the reef. And they would have been sitting in the plane or sitting somewhere on the reef uh, for the for those few days when the communication was ongoing and the search was was still inactive. Well, they wouldn't have been sitting in the plane very much, I think, because it's you know it's like 110 degrees sure. uh, on the island, and you're in an aluminum airplane. You'd you'd cook, so most likely they were sitting on the beach um, during the day and going out to the plane at night to. Uh, transmit distress signals as long as their fuel held out. Once their fuel was gone, they wouldn't be able to um, maintain power to the generator. And, and they wouldn't be able power. to transmit. Correct. Right. right. Now, do we have any idea where this reef was? Well, you obviously do if, if you found some landing gear or, or some imagery of that. Uh, so is there a reasonable idea of where the, 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 yeah. the reef is? Yeah. We have a very okay. good idea where the... the, the we have, the, the island was colonized in 1938, late 1938, and there were people on the island from 1938 to 1963, people from what were then called the Gilbert Islands, now Kiribati, and the Ellis Islands, now called Tuvalu. And we have people who report aircraft wreckage on the, on the reef, on the Northwest Reef, uh, in 1940 and thereafter. Uh, we have some aerial imagery from 1953 that shows something on the reef that has you know, approximately the spectral signature of aluminum. Uh, and then we have this photograph from 1937. So we're pretty sure that where they landed was on this northwest reef. What about the dimensions of the reef? How big would, would the reef have been? I mean... Well, on low reef, tide, let's say in low tide. Well, the reef is, uh, oh, gee, uh, 200 meters wide. It's um, one of our members who is a retired um, United captain, Skeet Gifford, has said that he could put a 747 down on that reef flat. He couldn't take it off again, but he could right. put it down. There's lots of room on the reef flat, and it's relatively smooth in part of the area, uh, it would not be a real big deal to put a plane the size of the Electra down on the reef. Right. What about oral accounts? I mean, you're saying that there were people around between 1938 and 1963. The landing was in 1937. What kind of oral accounts do we have? We have several accounts of aircraft wreckage being seen on the northern reef, a few accounts of aircraft wreckage being seen in the lagoon. We also have, during, during World War II, from 44 to 46, there was a Coast Guard, U.S. Coast Guard Loran station, long-range navigation station on the south end of the island, and it was supplied by Coast Guard cutters and PBYs. We have a PBY pilot who reports landing in the lagoon and seeing people fishing with aircraft control cable as their line, and when he really? asked them where it, yeah, when he asked them where it came from, they said, "Oh, it's from an airplane that was here when we got here." Wow! Um, and then in the colonial village, in the archaeological remains of the colonial village, we have found a good deal of aircraft aluminum. The people were obviously harvesting, quarrying aircraft aluminum somewhere 
bringing it to the village, making it into combs, into inlay on boxes, handicrafts, fish lures, things like that. Uh, now, there was a B-24, or PB-4Y, that went down on Canton Island, a couple hundred miles to the east. There was communication between these islands. Some of the material we've found is clearly from a B-24, from a Liberator bomber. Uh, but a lot of it is not, um, and a lot of it is consistent with the kind of aluminum that was in, in Earhart's Lockheed, Lockheed Electro. Yeah, it's consistent with a lot of other airplanes, too. So we, we have aircraft aluminum. We just don't have definitive aircraft aluminum. Okay, so let's get into the archaeological element of this. So you're saying that this might have been a locale where one, two, maybe several aircraft may have landed, crashed, whatever. No, and no, I'm saying one. We have one. Record, okay, records but... of only one aircraft. We, we have record of no aircraft crashing on this island ever, um, we think that Earhart's aircraft landed on the island and was subsequently broken up along the reef. Okay, so this would have been the only aircraft? Yes. Though and all they the had, pieces they that were contact, recovered? No, I'm sorry? No, they had contact with other islands. That's the thing. I see, okay. Canton Island, which was off to the east, was a fairly substantial U.S.-British base during World War II. And we have record of one B-24 that went down there. And so the people had access to aircraft wreckage from other islands. Right. And there was movement back and forth from island to island. So we, we can't say all this aircraft wreckage is from Earhart's plane. In fact, we can be quite sure that it's not, because some of it is clearly from a B-24. Um, so we don't we don't have definitive aircraft wreckage. We do have, let's say, suggestive aircraft wreckage. Okay. So did you go through the process of trying to unravel the various wreckage elements that were recovered and try to match them with the prototypes or, or with the design element of, of the Earhart aircraft? Well, understand that the pieces we find in the village are like... Uh, Fragmentary. They're very fragmentary. They've been right. cut up. They've been made into things. Often they're made into things like hair combs. They're small pieces of aircraft skin. Um, and some of them have the kinds of rivets that Earhart's plane had. They're the thickness of the kind of aluminum that Earhart's plane had. So they they match to that extent. But we don't have anything that's got a definitive part number or something that would would say that this is a, a, a part of Earhart's plane. Now, right. that piece may be hiding in the village, and we just haven't gotten to it yet. The village is a pretty good-sized place. It's all overgrown with feral coconut and pandanus, and it's a difficult place to do archaeology. Um, but it, those definitive pieces could be there. Okay, so tell us a little bit about the archaeology that was done. When was it started, and what was the design aspect of it, and, and, and how did you put that together, and when did well, you do that? Well, we started in 1989, and as, as we usually do with any kind of archaeology, the first thing we did after doing a lot of background research was to go to the island and conduct a, a surface survey. 
And we thought that was going to be pretty easy. The island's only about four and a half miles long and a mile and a half wide, and most of it's lagoon. Uh, we thought it wouldn't be that hard. But much of the island is covered with feral coconut and pandanus. Much of it is covered with one of the most noxious shrubs I have ever encountered, a thing called Scavola frutescens, that grows about uh, three meters high and is all intertwined, and it's just a real mess to try to cut through, walk through, crawl through, especially in 120-degree heat. So surveying the island was not easy, but we got a fair amount of, of basic survey done that first year. We found some things, some suggestive things, but nothing definitive. We sort of fell back and thought about it, and a couple of years later, I didn't go on the next expedition, but Rick and a number of other people did, and they went back and focused on a particular site, and there found uh, some shoe parts that appeared to be from a woman's blucher-style Oxford shoe from the 1930s, of the kind that Earhart wore on the world flight. Now, it's turned out in analysis that the shoe we found seems to be the wrong size. It doesn't match the size of shoes that we see Earhart wearing in photographs of, of the world flight. Did Earhart have different size shoes? We don't know. So that one has just, anyway, we, we pursued that one for some time. But meanwhile, we were looking at other, other angles. And there had long been a story. Um, it had been reported by one of the Coast Guardsmen, one of the Loran Station guys, a guy named Kiltz, that a native had told him that when uh, they were planting coconuts on the island, they had found human bones. And that the, uh, the magistrate had taken the bones, he said he was an Irish magistrate, and he had taken the bones and he had gotten in a boat to row off to Fiji and give them to the authorities. And then he died uh, when they hadn't yet made it to Fiji and the bones had been thrown overboard. And you know, we thought, what do we do with this story? <laughs> uh, but right. then, then, one of our members doing research on a totally different project in the uh, National Archives of Kiribati came up with a file called uh, Human Skeleton Finding of on Gardner Island. And it turned out that, yes, indeed, a skeleton had been found by the colonists, uh, well, 13 bones of a human skeleton, the cranium, the mandible, most of the long bones of a human skeleton had been found in 1940, southeast end of the island, and there was quite who, an elaborate record. And who record recorded of it. that? Who recorded that? Okay, who recorded it was Gerald B. Gallagher, a very interesting guy who died on the island in 1941. He was the administrator of what was called the Phoenix Island Settlement Scheme, and he was the guy in charge. He was not on the island when the bones were found, but he came to the island, learned of the bones' discovery, and found he, what was found initially was just the cranium, which was buried. Uh, the, the, the colonists buried it. Gallagher then dug up the cranium, found 12 more bones, along with some very interesting artifacts, shipped the whole thing to Fiji for inspection, and there was discussion of whether they might be the bones of Amelia Earhart. Gallagher was instructed by his superiors to keep the matter strictly secret, 
and to ship everything to Fiji, which he did. Um, they inspected them in Fiji, decided that they weren't Amelia's bones, and that was sort of the end of it. The last we hear of the bones is in early 1942. They're in storage in the hands of the medical doctor who had examined them in Fiji. They're somewhere in the what now is the Colonial War Memorial Hospital in Fiji. And yes, indeed, we have searched the Colonial War Memorial Hospital. Um, but that's where they disappear, and they've not been seen since by us. And on that note, we're going to take another break. We'll come back and discuss the archaeology of the quest for Amelia Earhart's disappearance right after these words. Thank you. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business talk. Frankly Speaking About Cancer is a program designed to empower survivors and their caregivers to deal with the social and emotional challenges of cancer. Drawing on resources from wellness communities throughout America and abroad, the show will invite physicians, researchers, nurses, social workers, patients, and caregivers to share their advice on how to live a better life with cancer. Join host Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Wellness Community, Tuesday afternoons at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. What would you do if you knew that you could not fail? The Dr. Pat Show with Dr. Pat Basile is a radio forum for some of the world's most influential people in the fields of health, wellness, and human potential. Dr. Pat brings together and introduces visionary scientists and futurists, environmentalists, educators, business leaders, inventors, filmmakers, authors, artists, mystics, and healers who inspire and support individual and collective growth and positive cultural shifts. This award-winning radio show empowers the listening community to be the change they want to see in the world. Tune in every Thursday. Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific for the Dr. Pat Show with Dr. Pat Basile, Radio to Thrive By. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra goarc.com. Now, back to the program. Thank you very much. We are back uh, discussing the the quest and the search for uh, the remnants of the wreckage of Amelia Earhart's flight over the Pacific in 1937. Uh, Tom, you were talking about the discovery of some bones sometime in the mid-1990s, and they went to Fiji 
and uh, for uh, analysis and where are we with that and and, no. and, and what was the determination of no. the identity of these bones? So no, the, the the bones were found in 1940. Uh, no, okay, but I mean the the, uh, the the discovery of of those bones in in storage is that what it would have been? No, we haven't discovered the bones. We would love to discover the bones, but okay. what we discovered was the records of the ah, bones. okay. The records of them being found on the southeast end of the island, the artifacts with them and so on, being shipped to Suva in Fiji, being examined by a medical doctor, uh, Dr. Hoodless, there, and then being uh, retained. Um, we have tried very hard to find those bones and the artifacts in Fiji and have thus far failed. We've had three different trips to Fiji uh, looking for them. We've had great cooperation from the government, from our embassy, from the uh, Fiji Museum. A lot of help trying to find the bones, but uh, we have not, in fact, yet been able to uh, lay our hands on them. And there's no individual around who has any memory of this having happened or who was involved in any of this, right? You can't track anybody. Well, not really. Uh, we get rumors from time to time, and and we track try to track those down. But you know, it's been a long time, and yeah. um, you know, there's really not nobody alive who we, was directly involved with the discovery. What we do have are the measurements that the doctor took on the bones, and those were analyzed. Those were examined by our forensic anthropologists, uh, Dr. Carr Burns, who tragically died just last week, oh. uh, and her colleague Dick Jantz, the University of Tennessee. And they concluded that if Dr. Hoodless was taking measurements the same way they take measurements now, uh, the bones look most like those of a woman of European ethnic origin, uh, about Five foot seven to five foot nine, which is a dead ringer for Earhart. Um, now that's a lot of ifs, but there it is for what it's worth. So we did find those records. We also found Gallagher's records of where on the island the bones were found. And he just says they were on the southeast end of the island under a particular kind of tree, a wren or tornaforcia tree, mm-hmm. uh, a certain distance from the ocean. We think we found the site where those bones were found. Uh, He also says that there were the remains of a fire and bird and turtle that had been somebody had been camping there and eating bird and turtle. We found a site that has the remains of campfires that um, have bird and turtle and fish bones in them, and that uh, we have evidence was cleared in 1940-41 and was reserved for government. It's officially set aside as reserved for government or for Gallagher. So you um, have archaeological features that conform to all of these characteristics. That's correct. We have we have we've excavated several archaeological features, which basically are are large fire areas, which contain some very uh, peculiar artifacts. Like one of them has two bottles. Um, one of them is a pre-war beer bottle. The other is apparently a St. Joseph's liniment bottle, uh, 
we have a, a, a guy who's becoming a real bottle expert working with us, uh, uh, Joe Shanelia, Shanelia, I can never pronounce the last name, um, and he's probably listening and laughing. Uh, in any event, <laughs> Joe, Joe uh, has been doing a detailed study of these things, and it looks like we've got a St. Joseph's Liniment bottle, um, which... We're, both bottles were standing upright in the fire, and the bottoms melted. It's as though somebody was trying to boil water or something, like to purify yucky water. Mm-hmm. Um, the kind of thing that a castaway would do, because there is no running water on this island. The only water you get is from rain and whatever collects in puddles. So... Um, that's one thing. The other, the other, well, both the two major fire features we've found uh, have the the this stuff that we initially called red stuff that we've now had chemically analyzed, and it looks very much like it is rouge um, from somebody's compact. Mm-hmm. We've also got two fragments of what is almost certainly a mirror from a compact. So it looks very much like somebody was there with a woman's compact. And we know that Earhart carried a compact. In fact, Joe has tracked down a couple of photographs that show Earhart holding the compact that, at least we think it's a compact, that would be about the same size and the same shape as the the mirror we found on the island. So... So there are a number of other things. I, we don't have time to go into all the details, but there's a, a lot of a lot of peculiar artifacts associated with these fire features that suggest a woman um, being cast away on the island at, in the late 1930s. Okay, so uh, get us back to the timeline of the investigation. These excavations of these archaeological features were performed when. Well, we um, we actually found the site uh, in 1996, but okay. didn't initially associate it with anything because we hadn't yet found the bones papers at that time. That right. was before the f- papers had been found. Once the papers were found, we began to say, hey, wait a minute, maybe this site, we call it the seven site because of a, a natural seven-shaped hole in the vegetation there. We think maybe the seven site is where the search took place where the bones were found. The more we looked at it, the more it looked like that was the case. So we went back to the seven site in 2001. Uh, we went again in 2007, and we were just back there again in 2010. Every time we have to clear this god-awful scavola off the site, and then we excavate. And the last season, 2010, was the most extensive excavations we've done. We're not through yet, but uh, we've got a lot more data that is now being analyzed. So give us a summary of where we are in terms of the excavation itself, the conversion, the convergence of various data sets, the type of information you're putting together, because it seems like it's pointing to the fact that she may have uh, been the person who was uh, actually making these fires, whether or not Newton was there at the time, I guess you don't know. 
Um, but where, where, where do we stand at this point, and is there any other compelling pieces of information that, that are giving us additional information, uh, additional data above and beyond uh, the pure archaeological uh, data that you've gotten from the, the excavation? Well, uh, right now it's, we're basically involved in analyzing the artifacts. Uh, Rick and Bob Renberg are reworking the radio radio signals. Um, Jeff Glickman, our forensic uh, imaging specialist, is doing a detailed analysis of this 1937 photograph that appears to show the landing gear of a Lockheed on the northern reef. And we just had we just had a team do a detailed search of the Colonial War Memorial Hospital in Fiji. They did find human bones, but uh, wrong DNA. They were not Amelia's bones. Um, we've also had a team that went to the Solomon Islands, which is where the colonists were relocated when the colony went belly up in 1963 and interviewed people about life in the colony, how they used the Seven site, uh, whether they ever saw airplane parts, and so on. And we've got the trans- we're, we're transcribing those notes and analyzing them. They brought back a good deal of useful information. No smoking guns, no, no information on, you know, here was the airplane, but um, a lot of good information. We also, in 2010, had a remotely operated vehicle that descended the reef face down to 300 meters, we thought that um, the reef dropped off fairly gradually. Turned out it drops off very sheerly, very steeply, down to about 300 meters, which was the operating depth of the ROV. And so it didn't find anything. It found a few pieces of stuff, but nothing that that uh, shouts Lockheed Electra. We think that the remains of the Electra may very well be down there, below 300 meters, but it's going to take a much bigger, fancier ship and bigger, fancier ROV to get down and, uh, and find it. So, so where's, the, where's the focus of research going at this point? Well, uh, the focus of research for Tiger as a whole is very definitely on the airplane and on the reef. And frankly, I would rather... We focused on the seventh side and finished it up. I think we got more information to get there, and we will be able to find more if we did that. But the corporate decision has been pretty much to focus on the um, the Northern Reef and try to get the money to do the deep water search. There will be a small expedition uh, this year uh, looking just at one little site uh, the, the, the focus is going to be on a particular site near where we think they landed, which would have been their first camp, the, the logical first camp, which has never been searched and apparently has never been too seriously disturbed. So there's going to be a search there. And then in, um, in June, actually, June 1st through 3rd, uh, we're we're planning a major conference uh, here in Washington D.C. or actually Alexandria, Virginia, 
that will sort of lay out all the data and make it available to the public. We have published three books on this, but um, this will be the first big sort of public exhibit of uh, of our findings and um, see what see what people think of it. Perhaps raise the money to uh, do the deep water search, which is a, a very costly undertaking. We're talking some millions of dollars to do that that deep water search. And and in that connection, Tom, let me ask you how people and listeners can get in touch with Tiger and find out more and possibly contribute to the effort. What are they? Is there a website, a web address? Yeah. Yeah, it's very easy. It's www.tiger, T-I-G-H-A-R, dot org. And uh, go there, and you'll find more than you'd ever want to know, uh, and lots and lots and lots of opportunities to uh, to participate. But Tiger is a volunteer organization. We, um, we're all volunteers, virtually all volunteers, and uh, we welcome anybody who wants to uh, give us a hand. Well, I think, Tom, I, it's safe to say that you're kind of closing in on this. I mean, getting more and more information, and hopefully at some point is your thought that either the smoking gun or the closest thing to the smoking gun will be found, or what are your thoughts on that? Well, I tend to be very suspicious of smoking guns, and I think that archaeology very seldom involves finding smoking guns. Archaeology mostly involves putting together little little bits of information and drawing rational inferences from them. And I think we have a whole bunch of little bits of information pointing in the same direction here. Um, I think we've got, if you will, a preponderance of evidence that Earhart and Noonan landed on Nicomororo, survived there for a while, and died. Um, We don't have a smoking gun, but I think, as you know, that doesn't always happen in archaeology. Smoking guns are not always what we wind up with. Uh, might might be what Indiana Jones would wind up with, but it's not what most of us in the real world wind up with. Tom, thanks so much for participating, and uh, all I appreciate your involvement. And uh, people know where to turn to and look forward to that conference. And uh, we're going to close on that note uh, okay. until. Until then, uh, thanks so much for listening, and remember that your understanding of the past is a guide to a more promising tomorrow. Thanks very much. See you next time. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.